Hello, Internet, and welcome to the Sky Simplified podcast, exploring astronomy through a different perspective, one episode at a time. My name is Pranet Sharma, and I'm a freshman at Yale University, as well as a lover of everything physics and space. With me today, I have Dr. Andrew Koh, an archaeologist and museum scientist at the Yale Peabody Museum, and a research fellow at the MIT Center for Materials Research in Archaeology and Ethnology. Today's episode is all about exploring astronomy through the perspective of an archaeological scientist. If this is your first time here, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate us. The best thing you can do for this podcast is to share it around. So let your family, friends, postman, neighbors, grocery, electrician, teacher, professor, anyone who you talk to know about this podcast. Now that we've gotten all of that out of the way, it's time to begin. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Okay, let's get started on today's topic, exploring astronomy through the eyes of an archaeologist. Dr. Ko, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you. Before we begin the interview, would you like to give the listeners a brief introduction about your career and your current research? Sure. Thanks for having me on your podcast, Burnett. I am what would typically be called an archaeological scientist within the field of archaeology, probably a a term that not many people have heard in the public. Um, How one gets to become an archaeological scientist is a complex path that's pretty much different for every person in this role. Myself, my background was in the sciences as an undergraduate at the University of Illinois, but I also took uh, a full course load in the ancient world, so I double majored, and then later on I circled back in graduate school. Um, returning to my roots now at Yale, um, part of a, a group uh, and the PI of what's now known as the Yale Ancient Pharmacology Program, a chance to revisit the mingling of these two different worlds. That's wonderful. Um, your experience, kind of as you mentioned, combining technology and archaeology is, is fairly unique. And I think these two fields have historically been very separate. And I'm so excited to discuss this further, as well as the surprising intersections that we might find with astronomy. So to explore this, I've curated a series of questions to guide our adventure into the murky waters of interdisciplinarity. So without further ado, let's begin. Um, one of the things that draws me to astronomy the most is that I see astronomy and physics as an effort to tell the story of our universe using this elegant construct we call math to really explore our surroundings in a way nothing else really can. So what is what aspects of archaeology are you drawn to? Because to me, I think archaeology is almost a similar effort to tell the story of our past in a way that history sometimes is not able to, and filling in those gaps. That's a great observation, Pranet. Um, one of the things that struck me when I listened to some of your previous podcasts is the concept that you had mentioned um, and discussed at length about starlight mm-hmm. kind of being this uh, record uh, from the past yeah. as you glimpse up into the sky. And that's really how, in many ways, I look at what we call material culture, mm-hmm. which is the subject matter of archaeology, ultimately. Every work piece of stone, every pottery shirt, every organic trace that uh, we come upon just like starlight, uh, it means different things to many people and depending on your analytical perspective. So in terms of observation, uh, coming up with different innovative tools 
I see many similarities between astronomy and archaeology in general. Wow. And kind of, is that the aspect that really drew you to archaeology? I mean, particularly given that you came from a scientific background and then you started doing ancient world studies for a lot of people that might seem fairly distinct. That's a great point. Um, I think when I first started graduate school, bringing these worlds kind of sorted together, it was in the back of my mind. But I'm sure as we'll talk about further along this podcast, there was no obvious path to study these two worlds together. So in large part, I kept them separate. I would study, uh, you know, I'll TA for calculus or bioengineering, and then I would go to my ancient history courses. Um, again, there was no obvious path and program. Sure. Um, there was a general interdisciplinary kind of milieu at the University of Pennsylvania, and my advisors uh, encouraged me to kind of bring these two worlds together. Mm. And I think that's ultimately what excited me because it was a chance not to just get your rudimentary standard training as an anthropologist, uh, art historian, uh, a philologist, etc., but a chance to kind of make your own mark. Right. Wow. And yeah, I really feel like that intersection is a niche that not a lot of people explore. So as you mentioned correctly, this is a great place for you to explore and kind of inhabit things that a lot of other people may not. It's, it's a really cool experience. So let's talk a little bit about astronomy of the past. Uh, many cultures have advanced astronomy as a field of study, you know, the Mayans, um, the ancient Indians, uh, the Arabs. Um, what are kind of the most striking examples of this that you may have come across in archaeological digs? That's another uh, great question. And the one that by far sticks in my mind that'll be familiar to some people is what we now know as the Antikythera mechanism. Yeah. And that's fascinating, not just in of itself. And for those not familiar with it, I would encourage you to look it up. It's absolutely fascinating. It's what I think still today in astronomy would call an orrery. Mm -hmm. So it, it kind of predicts the patterns of celestial bodies and being ancient Greek, quote-unquote Greek, of course it also tells you when the famous uh, you know, Panhellenic Games took place, right? Sure. So, you know, every four years, depending on Do you want to kind one. of describe how the mechanism works? That is one of the big mysteries. I mean, one of the things to preface it with, of course, is in addition to um, how re remarkable this instrument is, which is often called the first analog computer, the reason why it fascinates me is because of the topic that we're talking about today is the intersection between the sciences and astronomy in particular and archaeology and material culture. But in addition to the instrument itself being absolutely fascinating, the circumstances of how we have it today are equally fascinating, I would argue even more so. Because presumably there were multiple um, examples of this instrument in the past. Um, some probably were more sophisticated even than this one. I mean, there weren't probably hundreds of them, but dozens, presumably, at the most learned institutions at the time. And what's really unique about this piece is how miraculous it was that it was ever found. Mm. It, it, as some of you might know, it was found off the island, this tiny island off of Greece called Antikythera, hence its name. When it was found by sponge divers and later archaeologists, it was brought up and no one even recognized what it was. Right. It was just kind of a lump of mass. And it actually sat for two years out of salt water, which many people might know is not very good for anything. <laughs> and just imagine the circumstances it took for that 
instrument to be known today. So it had to be discovered like a needle in the haystack of the ocean. It had to be brought up and somehow Meraxi survived two years out of salt water. And then Meraxi preserved and then somebody had to recognize what it was. And what's neat is that it actually connects with Yale. Really? Um, one of the uh, early scholars of this piece was a gentleman named Professor Derek Price, who was a professor of ancient science here. Wow. So again, this really interesting connection that um, how many different things had to align uh, for this mm -hmm. to happen. And um, this can be a common theme about the interstices of different disciplines. And Derek Price is certainly one of these examples where you had to have somebody with a very unique background and experience. So interested in material culture and with the scientific, astronomical, mathematical um, expertise right. to study it. Because I feel like modern astronomers wouldn't understand what it was from a, a, a Greek perspective. And then archaeologists who completely kind of distanced themselves from the science would not have understood its astronomical significance. And kind of along those lines, what do you think astronomy can tell us about archaeology? And what can archaeology tell us about astronomy? Sure. Um, I mean, there's so many things. Um, just to go quickly back to what uh, you had asked before, um, in addition to the Antikythera mechanism, just to give an idea for your listeners of what's possible, mm -hmm. um, and this might intrigue you as well, I think, as many other people, in addition to what has been found like the Antikythera mechanism, uh, again, which takes astronomers, mathematicians, archaeologists, et cetera, to really understand it. We can even talk about things that haven't been found. And Whoa. so I'll give you a good example of that. Very few, everyone, I mean, so many people know about the Antikythera mechanism. But what if I told you about something called the Stone Tower? Never heard of it. But I know who you're going to hundred. I mean, I would <laughs> bet everything that you would know who wrote about it. It was a gentleman named Claudius Ptolemy. Really? He wrote about this uh, interesting piece. Because you got to understand back then, uh, many of these people were polymaths, right? They right. were mathematicians, astronomers, yeah, yeah. poets. Ptolemy. Ptolemy actually has a pretty big impact on ancient astronomy. Um, kind of, he's famous for being wrong because he was one of the, the main proponents of the geocentric model of That's the right. universe. But I did not know he was involved kind of in the construction of such devices. Well, what's fascinating is he was also, of course, a geographer because um, you can imagine that mathematics... Mm -hmm. And a, a knowledge of the uh, of the world and, and its surroundings is is very helpful to understand geography. Mm -hmm. And he mentions this uh, very important landmark called the Stone Tower, which was, I believe it as you may, some people say the precise or you know close enough the uh, the exact midpoint of the ancient Silk Road. Wow! So it's an example where it's uh, frustratingly <laughs> uh, ridiculous that. Uh, Ptolemy actually gave uh, coordinates for it. Right. And as you can imagine, just like when people study the geometry of the Great Pyramids or something like that, when you have something that generally precise, you would assume that you could find it. Right. Um, last time I checked, there are five or six proposals of where it might be and uh, still never been found. And you would think a stone tower, as the name suggests, is not something that would be hidden. Be hidden or go missing. You know, you'd think at least the base of it would exist. Sure. And of course, there might be shifting sand dunes on it. So it's in the reason, region of today's like Kazakhstan in that area. But that's an example where um, it's not just a monument, but there are all these interesting attributes assigned to it. So 
to and me yeah yeah what are some of the attributes like well it, that's where i think uh knowing the sciences and things like geography and also ancient history and archaeology are helpful because um you got to also figure out how much of it is accurate and how much of it is apocryphal so that's mm. one difference of course sure um so you have the original writing by ptolemy and then subsequent writers kind of either truthfully or not embellished saying this was the meeting place of the caravans and uh, it had different uh, qualities on and so forth. So to me, it's fascinating because it seems that it's more than just a marker. There's something else uh, attributed to it. But again, that's what fascinates scholars. And yet it's, it's never been found. Um, You had mentioned this, um, how does astronomy inform archeology span and and vice versa? I I think, um, just thinking about that question and my time uh, with you, again, going back to the idea that astronomy is a field that is based on observation and developing the best tools, I think um, that's a perfect example where uh, understanding of these disciplines and bridging it helps us answer some of these questions. And one of the, the major uh, topics I think that will be familiar to almost anybody in any of these fields is the topic of chronology. Right, yeah. So, of, of course, time is very important in astronomy. Um, and I think it's probably, I thought about it, it's probably the one topic that's equally important in, in both fields, and they do inform each other. Because you probably heard about some of these ancient observations of eclipses, so on mm-hmm. and so forth. Supernovae. That's right, that's right. Because um, relative chronology in archaeology is fairly easy to discern, as in what things happen in relation to each other. The big difficulty is, is absolute chronology. Mm-hmm. And that's usually where the sciences come in, like you know, uh, astronomical observations, dendrochronology, and, and those kind of things. Sure, That is hopeful, but at the same time, it's also, as I mentioned, um, uh, something that kind of falls through the cracks, right? right. Now, I think that's, this is another thing that just really amazes me about astronomy and, and how for so long our civilization has been enamored with it. You know, like the fact that people, however many years ago, were able to look at these events, think they were significant enough to note down, and then based on our understanding of when these events occurred through our development of science, we're then able to place the exact moment that they wrote it down. And I just think it's such a beautiful image of us finding our mirror in the universe and finding out things about our past just by looking kind of into the future almost. So it's 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 really beautiful. So I think you mentioned earlier, right, that you pursue the field of archaeological science, which may not be as familiar to people. And I think generally there's been a trend of, of a separation of technology and archaeology, but your work is very involved with bringing them together. So what's that experience been like? You know, I, I know plenty of people in technology and who would be like, oh, archaeology, that's that's just dusty and boring. And then people in archaeology being like, technology, that's, that's all new and like unnecessary. So how have you been able to bridge that gap? And kind of what's that experience been like? That's a great question. One thing you got to understand about archaeology is that it's a field that borrows heavily from other disciplines mm-hmm. for, for various reasons. Um, so when you talk about uh, neutron activation analysis or uh, something like uh, a PXRF, um, so X-ray fluorescence, a lot of these analytical techniques that analyze uh, composition or uh, things of that sort typically came from other fields or even things like medicine. Um, One thing that has fascinated me is that 
even though archaeology is relying on technology and it's heavily invested in it, um, where I've been most interested in is just like with observing starlight or something like that, how can we best uh, analyze it? And I, I feel like my unique perspective is the fact that I do have a science background. Mm-hmm. So I can not only just perhaps use these tools that are borrowed from other disciplines, but then I could also uh, truly understand what they do, adapt them, so on and so forth. So a, a good example of that is in my own work um, with organic residue analysis. It's one of the oldest, you can argue, techniques in archaeology because all it is is you look at organics and you want to figure out what they are. Sure. So it could be something as simple as um, this bowl I had discovered in the Egyptian section of the Penn Museum from many thousands of years ago. Um, it was full of desiccated dates. <laughs> so organic and being Egypt that get preserved. And then there's a little piece missing in the area that apparently it's been missing for quite some time. I didn't know it was 100 years ago or thousands of years ago until I found this really neat note next to it. Mm-hmm. written in a very prim and proper handwriting and it says uh, apparently dates as tested by assistant wow so and then the, I think I believe there was even a date about when it was done like the 1920s or something like uh-huh. that so arguably as you can understand um, your, your approach might be generally the same right but the tools available are different so that would technically be or, you know organic residue analysis but that's very different from using something like chromatography sure. to, 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 to analyze trace <laughs> remains, so on and so forth. Um, so that what I've looked at is I've seen um, the questions. So that's where my training as an archaeologist comes in. Hmm. But then my knowledge of the sciences allows me to ask, is there a better way right. of understanding these things? Um, one contrast I can give you, uh, an example, is though, like I said, archaeology typically is relying on other disciplines and borrows from them in terms of instruments and analytical tools. Um, one example I want to give that's very well known that's kind of counter to that and th- the way I model organic residue analysis is carbon dating. Mm-hmm. And of course, though that's not necessarily central, the concept to astronomy, of course you wouldn't have uh, radioactive isotopes mm-hmm. without cosmic rays and all those other kind yeah. of things. So it is kind of related. Um, <laughs> and what's unique about it is when it was developed in the 40s by Willard Libby at Chicago, it was actually um, driven in large part by material culture and archaeology. Yeah, wow. So that's the way I view it is why, yes, archaeology should be relying on other techniques and tools. You want to adapt everything possible. But in my opinion, we need more people who are familiar enough with the tools out there. Why not develop their own tools? It's actually really, really cool. And something that I was also reading about in the past, kind of tying back to our earlier discussion, you know, of archaeology influencing science. When um, the Antikythera like mechanism was discovered, it really caused a resurgence of the idea of an analog computer. And a lot of work, you know, um, I'm sure you're familiar with Moore's Law, um, it's That's like right. the amount of transistors you can fit on a chip like doubles. Mm-hmm. Um, but the big thing is eventually we're going to reach a limit. And digital computers are very versatile, but they will always hit kind of a limit. So there is a lot of work within the computer science field and even the physics field with quantum computing to start exploring analog computing again as designing specific computers to solve specific tasks. But they can do it extremely, extremely well. And this was definitely stemmed by like this rekindling 
of, of analog computers from these past discoveries. So I just think it's so cool how these fields just constantly affect each other in such wonderful ways. And, and that's why I believe that it's good to be open to all kinds of opportunities and situations. And oh, yeah. the reason why I mentioned that is you, you just never know. I often get the question, uh, you know, Dr. Ko, where should I go to do archaeological science or become an X kind of archaeologist? <laughs> and what I tell them is, Go where the best opportunities are, as you can see, but also keep an open mind. Right. And uh, kind of riffing off of your previous example, you know, I, I went to the University of Illinois because I grew up outside Chicago, and that was the obvious place to go for a research university. Uh, but much of how my worldview is and how I approach archaeology and the possibilities is, is informed by the fact that I took uh, computer science courses at right. uh, the Beckman Institute of Engineering. And of course, you know, I didn't plan it this way, um, but Illinois was one of the original, uh, you know, innovators, uh, NCSA, so on and so yeah. forth. And then later at the University of Pennsylvania, of course, with ENIAC and so on and so forth, you learn about mm -hmm. the history of computers, so on and so forth. So I, I didn't enter into these universities thinking I'm going to do something with computer science. But thankfully, I had these opportunities. And now uh, when I need one of these tools or I think about where things are going, mm -hmm. um, when we think about even AI and things like that, I thankfully uh, got this experience, so then I can start thinking, well, how does that affect what I'm doing, and how could it even radically change our ability to analyze right. that human starlight? Wow. It's such cool stuff. On that topic of, I think you, you ended up at places that were wonderful in both computer science and in archaeology. Um, so talking about their intersection, what do you think has been the most significant development in archaeology? And this could be kind of a new technology that truly changed things, or even if you want to talk about, like, the most significant discovery in your field of, you know, like, ancient Hellenic studies, like, what, what would you say it is? That's a, a, an interesting uh, question that is both, uh, on one hand, uh, simple to answer if you look at it, in one way, but also very complex. Because uh, when we talk about significant discoveries, um, it does, I think, really matter one's perspective. Mm. Because obviously in certain fields, um, as many people view archaeology, it's about discoveries of things, right? Mm. And, and of course, there are spectacular things. I was involved in what was known as the earliest palatial wine cellar, which, you know, wow. uh, made the cover of the New York Times, and I got all these phone calls on and so <laughs> forth, which was in part uh, really interesting because it brought attention to archaeology. Right. Um, but what I was looking at at the time was the techniques I used in developing the field in terms of organic residue analysis mm -hmm. that allowed us to get to those like, that great splashy headline. So uh, for me, the discovery of the wine cellar and its incre incredible ingredients was absolutely fascinating on one level. Uh, but another level, I was absolutely fascinated by the fact that it was almost like a new frontier. Right. You know, um, organic residue analysis, like I mentioned, had been done in the past, but had it been incorporated into field work, like something like botany or something like that. And it really hasn't. I mean, for better or worse, archaeochemistry or whatever you want to call it has been very lab-based throughout its history. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one of the earliest scientific approaches to archaeology. But I, what I always point out to people is that you can always gravitate towards the, the latest and greatest mm -hmm. ancient DNA analysis. Of course. Uh, so, and there is excitement, and obviously, and there should be about these kind of approaches. But the other thing I tell students is that uh, don't discount some of these older approaches 
because at their heart, what the questions you're trying to answer are incredibly important. But what often happens is that um, we get entrenched into a certain type of way to approach it that was set by the original people who kind of pioneered the field, like Willard Libby with carbon-14. Mm-hmm. But if we don't have a- additional people later building upon it and they move on to the next thing, then sometimes we don't realize we haven't even approached the possibilities of some of these approaches. And that's what it comes down to in my own research with the organic residue analysis is that it's been done for quite some time. Mm-hmm. But how can we uh, use it in such a way that it uh, is more effective and answer right. some of these very interesting questions. I can give you one uh, salient example of that, and it kind of relates again to our fields, is that I'm often told that the last frontiers in life, or what are you going to call it, it basically involves our two worlds in many ways, so for space for you. Um, but the mind for me is, is important because um, that is ultimately why it might not be obvious to your average person is what we're trying to get to. Mm-hmm. Because when we talk about human, the human existence and studying it, the human past, as we mentioned at the very start, it ultimately comes down to human behavior. Why do we do the things that we do? Right. Um, it might manifest itself in incredible architecture mm-hmm. or incredible pharmacopoeic recipes that cure all kinds of things that we don't know about. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, talking about the way we perceive the world, how people in the past have perceived the world. Mm-hmm. So when people say fundamentally, what are you trying to do with like an ancient pharmacology program? Um, it's it's shorthand something that people can understand for ultimately understanding uh, the human mind and how we're approaching the world. Like, why are we drinking this stuff? Why are we right. eating these things? And how does it affect our day to day? Right. And despite the fact that I admit that the way we're viewing the past is 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 entrenched in the 21st century view, there's something really neat. Just as when again when you see sun, starlight uh, from many years ago. Uh, the, a commonality that exists saying, wow, uh, this person ate this because they had a headache or something like that. Right. So that shared humanity is, is really one of the things that fascinates me. Um, wow. That's actually really, really profound. I think there's just so much beauty in, in, in looking at this person, you know, chewing on uh, like aspirin bark or something and then just looking at how that's translated to today. Or looking at someone, you know, with like a glass of wine in their hand and seeing how that's translated to today. It's, that's right. Wow. Um, and this actually leads really well into our, our last question for today. One of my favorite aspects of astronomy is how our study of the tangible can inform the abstract and how so much philosophy and so much cosmology is really rooted in this is deep human desire of knowing where we came from and where we're going. So where do you find the abstract in archaeology? That's a great question that is actually, um, whether people realize it or not, archaeologists realize it or not, it's at the heart of what has gripped the discipline for the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. And I'm often caught up in this as an archaeological scientist because sometimes people view me as a paradox. Um, I may call it everything from a paradox to a unicorn. Um, uh, I like the latter better. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's an interesting existence. Um, but in terms of the abstract, that's, I love that because it's an opportunity to, to talk about subject matters in a, in a fairly neutral uh, fashion. And right. the reason why I mention that is one of the great big battles in archaeology that you really don't need to know about and nobody really needs to know about uh, in the last 15 years that's consumed the field is this idea of what is known in the field as uh, processualism and post-processualism. I see. It is kind of 
a specific version of maybe we'd call like modernity and postmodernity. Mm-hmm. The reason why it affects our discussions is because, uh, you know, processualism, um, and that's not a term that people who are kind of put in that category would view themselves. Um, it's, they would call it the new archaeology and, and, and the practitioners of the so-called new archaeology in like the 60s. So it's not now, it's from the 60s. Uh, these were largely scientists. So you can imagine the cultural context, you know, post, it's just like everything in society, uh, post Sputnik, right? Space mm-hmm. age, so on and so forth. And archaeology got caught up in that. Um, the idea that if you put on a lab coat and, and goggles, then you can answer every question. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, post-processualism was the idea that there's subjectivity involved, mm. right? No matter how many, how clean your your lab is, there, there's a certain subjectivity in the way you view things. And people always often ask me, where do you stand on it? With the idea that, of course, they, they assume that I'm going to be your tried and true, you know, processualist as right. a scientist. Uh, but I don't think these are helpful categories. And I've encouraged students, my own students, to move beyond that because... It's exactly what you had mentioned about the abstract, because yes, you could be scientific, but at the same time, acknowledge that um, the way you view the world and observe is, 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 is in some part at least, and more so in the social sciences and the sciences, of course, it, it's affected by your own background and your own training. I mean, that happens in the sciences too, like how you're uh-huh. trained in the lab and who your mentors are, so on and so forth. Um, but that doesn't negate one or the other. Oh, certainly not. Um, so that is... Uh, a very keen uh, observation on your own part that um, it does affect uh, your view and it also is its own source of fascination. Mm. And rather than being something that's sometimes cast as a negative, like in archaeology, post-processualism and all that, I don't think those are helpful, but instead view it as an opportunity to kind of view um, perhaps the limitations um, while still pursuing the scientific, because you can imagine the the in the at the height of post-processualism, and even its main practitioners like Ian Hodder acknowledged that mm-hmm. it wasn't helpful because um, it, it, to an extreme, it basically means you throw out science. Yeah. You know, so um, I think that ultimately shows that um, in life, to 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 achieve the best uh, outlooks and uh, perspectives, uh, ultimately, I think how do you get yourself out of that? People ask me, well, I think one way to do that is to look beyond your own field. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it's wonderful that you're doing this podcast. It's a chance to see how others uh, observe things. So when you mentioned the abstract, it absolutely fascinates me because the way it's accepted in a various, uh, in your own scientific world, right. the ability to discuss that and, and talk about it uh, in, in other circumstances, like I said, in the post-processual archaeological world 10, 20 years ago, it was something that you didn't really discuss because it was kind of put down as something that is, is inferior or is, or is not the correct way. So wow. um, I really love the fact that you, as an astronomer and all that, uh, were, was able to bring that up. And it just yeah. re- that part fascinates me. Well, from one storyteller of the universe to another, thank you so much for coming on our podcast is there some advice that you have for aspiring archaeologists, physicists, or researchers who might be listening? I think based on my own experience, I think um, no matter what life and people tell you, I think ultimately it's uh, as simple as it sounds. I think just keep staying curious. And I think that is ultimately, again, what drives both of us, people in our field, is uh, there are things in life that might make you put your head down and not pursue things. But mm-hmm. I certainly would not be here if I I didn't uh, (laughs) stubbornly stay curious in everything that I did. So I encourage that in everyone. 
chase your dreams. That's right. Um, and lastly, are there any websites or resources that you'd like to plug? Sure. Um, the main one where a lot of my work will be uh, forthcoming, since I'm fairly new to Yale, would be at peabody.yale.edu. We'll start announcing some of my work. And if uh, people want to catch what I'm doing on different social media, my uh, I typically go by the handle, and you can probably understand <laughs> this, and your listeners can unravel this. I go by <laughs> kappa hy- hydroxide. <laughs> you can probably figure it out. It's a juxtaposition of my two worlds. Mm-hmm. K-O-H. <laughs> That's right. Potassium hydroxide would be too obvious, right? <laughs> no. I think, and also the kappa brings in the ancient element. And, the, uh, and scientific, wonderful. right? That's wonderful. <laughs> Since uh, science, of course, relies upon uh, Greek nomenclature, so... So yeah, go follow Kappa Hydroxide um, wherever there's social media. And many thanks once again. I hope you listeners are a little more enlightened. I know I sure am. And thank you so much for listening to the Sky Simplified podcast, where we're exploring a new outlook on astronomy every episode. If you'd like to contact us, please visit www.skysimplified.com and head over to the contact page where you'll be able to find a portal to send us messages, questions, concerns, or just chat in the hope that you're all safe and doing well. Clear skies. The Sky Supply Podcast is created, hosted, edited, and produced by Pranet Sharma. The music is by Pranet Sharma. For questions about the show, go to www.skysimplify.com. As always, thank you for listening and clear skies. <laughs>